And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. Great day here in New York City because my guest, well, he's used to being a host. He is the host of Late Night with Seth Meyers. Table table turned. Yeah, get ready. Yeah. We are going to flip the actual script here. This is is Seth Meyers. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, Today is Friday. Yes. Which is your day off. The talk show host's traditional day of rest. Yes. We will, I will go into the office after this. We we do still convene and do some work, but we don't tape, so it feels like a day. Off. Oh, okay. I appreciate that then. Yeah. I, I, I thought that maybe this was your day to just wild out or just... No, you know. we still save the conventional weekends for the wilding. Do you really? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. Because I know your schedule previously to late night was, you know, very much based around... Yes. To get to... I mean, to lose that six-day-a-week schedule was a real lifesaver. Like, <laughs> yeah. literally saved my life, I'm pretty sure. You did that for a very long time. Yeah. I did it about as long as anybody's ever done it. And... It's funny, especially my generation, we all remark on how much younger we look ever since we stopped. <laughs> yes. Particularly Andy Samberg, who looks fantastic. He looks great. And he looked like a ashen, <laughs> you know, sort of like a tuberculosis victim. What's interesting is this doesn't happen to presidents who age probably equal to Saturday Night Live yes. cast members, but then they don't de-age They afterwards. don't bounce back, yeah. Maybe because of what they've seen is potentially a little more real or raw. Right. Also, we all stay in show business, which, of course, there's a lot of tricks to make you look younger. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Andy has moved to California, and I imagine the golden light has cured him. I said at Andy's wedding because I gave a toast at Andy's wedding, that they should put a before and after photo of Andy as you drive into California. Yes. It's just like, this is what this state <laughs> yes. did for this poor man. Yes. And and that would be like a, a better pull than anything you right. could Right. Sure, advertise. we don't have water, but look what we did. Look what we did to Andy's <laughs> To this sketch we comedian. Fixed him. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, someone <laughs> yes, did. We put light into his body. I want... Is, has... You, have you considered having your body studied by science because of what that toll did to you for all those years? I, I would have been terrifying to have gone through like one of those, you know... Uh, uh, Olympic testing things where they like, like strap stuff to your 50 chest. cent at the beginning of the in the club video exactly yeah because um, I do think it's really just that every night you slept a different amount of time yes because that's what I've realized this job look is not without its stresses yeah it's very hard work but I go to bed and I wake up every the same time every day yeah. or at SNL there were just it was different like periods of time and then your body just cannot survive when it does that. Also, I, I would imagine, yes, it's different that you're making four shows a week instead of just one, but you're making ostensibly the same show and then doing variations within it. Whereas yes. Saturday Night Live, well, you always know when Weekend Update is going to happen. Right. It's essentially a completely new show every week. Yeah, you're building it up from the bottom. And also, I think the bigger thing about getting to do a show every night is doing the show is the release of the pressure. Right. And, you know, then when you do, when you have the luxury of volume, as far as how many shows you do, mm-hmm. that allows you to be a little bit less precious about it. Whereas with SNL, especially because you only have this one host for these six days, yes. you feel like you're building a ship in a bottle and when something goes wrong, it can stay with you. I mean, there are still shows from my time there that I'm really? Saying, oh, we really, that one did not go well. Still. Yeah, whereas I can't, you know, in my head... I can't remember, you know, oh, that was a great show or that wasn't. Because you're building a longer Yes, and as you said, they all kind of look a little bit more similar, yeah. whereas, you know, uh, with different hosts, SNL can be a very, a vastly different show. I have to ask you, since you brought it up, um, you are uh, sleeping a regular amount of time now. Yeah. That's very nice. But when you do wake up in a cold sweat, what is the Saturday Night Live missed opportunity show that wakes you up? Um, I wouldn't, you know, I, I feel like I'm very... Uh, careful never to mention a host's name. I knew you would be, but I thought yeah. if, I, if I really you came in hard came early. In it, yeah. I, it's more, you know, there are, you know, obviously over the course of time, you just know the difference between, it's not, I never have wake up in a cold sweat about someone who maybe wasn't a great host and then it wasn't a great show. Right. But there are times, like hosts that come multiple times. Right. You know, and then you look back on, you know, obviously if you look back on all of Alec Baldwin's shows, some of them are transcendent and then the ones that are just average, you know, you feel like you missed the opportunity because you're supposed to do a better than average show with Alec Baldwin. That's right. And the other thing is, Alec Baldwin's a really smart guy and he knows that it's also average. Like that's the thing with a bad host who is doing it for the first time, you can trick them into thinking it's fine. Yes. Whereas you can't trick somebody like uh, Justin or Alec or John Hamm into into thinking like, hey, this one's a really good one. They know. They know. You can't trick John Hamm would be a great reality series. Yeah. I feel like I would like to be involved in that. Um, 
I wanted to have you here for many reasons, and I want to talk about Saturday Night Live, of course, but I do want to talk specifically about Late Night. Um, you've now been doing it for just over a year and a half. Yeah. The show is really good. Thank you. I really have been enjoying it a lot. Um, Appreciate it. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the... Well, in an email, you said that it... And I think correctly, that doing the show is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh-huh. Um, it is now October 2015. You have a time-traveling device. You can go back and speak to Seth Meyers in January 2014, one month before the debut. Right. What do you tell this this naive, doe-eyed young man? It's such a good question because at the same time, you know, I think where we came, where sort of where we've arrived to and where we're continuing to go, well, you know, you learn from the mistakes of you course, make. yeah. And so I, don't, I wouldn't want to go back and, like, save myself those mistakes because... I also don't even think I'd trust myself from the future. <laughs> right. <laughs> My inability to trust anything. Yes. Um, who, who is this yeah. handsome guy in a plaid shirt? But, you know, I think one of the things we did, like, for example, you know, we spent obviously a long time doing monologues, regular monologues, right. regular standing conventional monologues. And recently we made this shift back to starting at the desk. A revolutionary shift. Tons a revolutionary shift. did this. not realize, you know, we did not realize we were uh, starting a revolution. But yeah. it, you know, with that said, I do think if we had just started that way, you know, my my first late night was three weeks after my last weekend update. Yes. It would have looked like we hadn't taken any risks. It would have mm-hmm. looked like, hey, this is the exact same. I'm not trying to do anything differently. Whereas returning to it was a successful move. I don't know if we'd started that way. Right. Um, you know, and other things, you know, we did figure out things really quickly. Because, and I think this is why it also took us so long to get back to the desk. One, we had built a set for our test shows yeah. that was like a weekend update set. Yeah. That we would use sort of in the second act and do, we were calling it the newsmaker's desk, and we would have our writers sort of play somebody in the news, and it looked very much like an update oh, right. feature. And we discarded it immediately. Uh, we could just tell, like, oh, this isn't going to work in the way that update features work. Because with an update feature, even if Bill Hader is playing a character for the first time, he comes out and the audience has this confidence that it's Bill Hader. Yes. Whereas with my writing staff, like you, I realized, oh, it's going to take a couple of years to like slowly introduce sort of the performers and our writing staff to the yeah. audience and to the point where they're sort of patient enough to stick with it. Because Hater at the Weekend Update desk is a great example of it. It's you are eager to go on that journey. And, yes, and watching him navigate the uh, the moguls downhill is part of the joy of it. Yeah, and you know, like every person at SNL, you have hits and you have misses, but there, you need the audience to at least be willing to. I assume it's going to be a hit. You're invested in the person, not the bit, because right. there's another bit coming. And so that was, uh, I guess I would go back, and and this is a, this was probably the hardest shift for me to take, because uh, my time at SNL wasn't just as, obviously, as a cast member, but also as part of writing staff. Yeah. And I think, and this was something that Lauren tried to impart on me from the beginning, which is, like, you, it's it's really just about you when you host a late night talk show. And mm-hmm. it's, you have to, in a weird way, like... Um, I'm not very good at being selfish in the way I needed to be, I think, to get the show to a comfortable place. Right. Um, which is like, oh, and then, you know, in this act, someone else will come out and we'll do a bit together. And then, and it was slowly, and I think that's why now I'm really comfortable with the first act of the show, is it's me doing the thing I'm best at. Right. And, uh, yeah, but it just took a while to get there. It's been interesting um, having the, the beat that I've had for the last few years during this period of talk show uh, upheaval and, yeah. and, and a lot of new hosts coming in. And basically, my job being to review the first show, which yeah. is impossible and cruel. I mean, we don't review restaurants on the day they open. No, um, but it, it makes it doesn't make sense for two reasons. One, because obviously this is this is not the show that it's going to be. The, you know, the person is green, doing something new for the first time. But more than that, the show is the body of work and the trust and the relationship. Yes, that you choose to spend time with that person. It's like has, a comfort level has to be developed. Um, so to come in and, you know, I wrote about Trevor's debut two weeks ago, which was a great mm-hmm. debut, but I had to write and say, I promise you this is in no way reflective of the daily show with Trevor Noah in six months, right. one year or two years. Um, these things evolve. And I do think with all these shows more than other types of television, yeah. you are tuning in for some degree of consistency. Yes. Obviously, you as a viewer know some shows are going to be better than others. Some shows will have like a big guest that will sort of take over the show that night. But ultimately, like when you think of the time of day people are settling in to watch these shows, mm-hmm. they want to say, like, what is the average 
late night episode? And is that something that can hold my attention at 1235 at night? Well, one of the things that I really grown to like about what your show has turned into is obviously the political stuff has been very good. And I think that was very smart because that's in your wheelhouse. But also there was potentially a void as, as John was stepping away and Stephen was moving to CBS. People love that sort of humor and you were more than qualified to do it. Yeah. With that said, you know, that was another thing that really just took a year and a half to yeah. figure out how to do. You know, I certainly was drawn to draw, uh, writing about politics at SNL and on Weekend Update, but it was a whole different style. Mm -hmm. And we not only had to find writers who were good at that, but we had to teach the other writers who weren't good at that, as well as teaching myself. Because, mm -hmm. again, like writing sort of like longer political runs was a, a skill set that just takes a while to develop. And in the beginning, and they're really hard to pull off. And so in the beginning, it was once a month, and then it was once a week. And now we're trying to shooting for two or three times a week. It's a really interesting balance because you want to be it's a mix of inf you want to be informative to some degree mm -hmm. there's a degree of stridency isn't the word but passion if it's, yes. especially if it's an issue that you know you, you're, you're not like tipping point your point of view okay. that i feel like is I, I would say the biggest shift and i think it came in no small part from colbert report daily show mm -hmm. and john and steven like just kind of showed like audiences like knowing what mm -hmm. the host feels and i feel like that wasn't the case maybe 20 years ago in That's the right. same way I mean, you knew what, obviously, Letterman felt about things, but you didn't, like, you didn't know his politics in the same way. He didn't, he seemed to look at the world always with the same wry, detached amusement. You yes. never saw him get heated. Right. Um, particularly. But, but I would say, you know, in Weekend Update, the thing that I'm thinking of is when you did Really with Amy. Yeah. Because that was a little bit like a pressure release. I mean, you guys, A, had so much fun with it, and it, it was, yes. that made it fun to watch. But people want that tone they we do want to, we want to say stop the world this is insane and it was you know i remember there's so few times when you do anything at snl that it's well i guess what i'm saying is like sometimes things start you don't realize you have a hit on your hand right really i remember the first time we did it thinking oh that you know yeah. that one actually works we yeah. were i mike sure and i used to always talk about because we met at SNL. and This is Mike Sure, who went on to create Parks and Recreation yep. and is a noted baseball blogger. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Famous most for being a baseball <laughs> blogger. But, and this is why I'm so happy this is leading into our baseball analogy about SNL. Because yes. that's pretty much how we framed all of it. Oh, which perfect. Is, ultimately, you work at SNL for a really long time, and there's only like six bat flip moments <laughs> where you either have a sketch or a joke. Very timely, by the Very way. Very timely, you. yes. Where you just, that thing of you just know off the bat that you've mm -hmm. done it and I guess the first really would have been one of the closest I ever had to that um, the uh, you know the, I, what you, you said about Planned Parenthood the other week was very well done but I was really um, engaged by the, the gun violence one yeah because I felt like that to me that was the perfectly mixed cocktail of those three things of uh, what I think I only listed two but uh, <laughs> I'm really yeah. good at this passion yeah uh, passion uh, information giving yes. And jokes. Yeah. Which are, of course, the most probably the most important ingredient. That's the gin in the martini. I think, yeah, because you, you, you do, like, there's this news element. Like, will people know a little bit more when this is over? Mm -hmm. um, and keeping in mind that I do think a lot of people, you know, people who work hard, people who have mm -hmm. long days, like, they miss the news. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming uh, people aren't on Twitter as much as you and I. I think they're... I hope so. I hope so, as um, well, for the benefits of their families. And their, the benefit of the world. <laughs> yeah. And... So there's maybe something they missed. Uh, and then, yes, obviously jokes. But I do think, and what we've learned, because sometimes we'll do a piece that I would say sort of qualifies as an explainer more than anything else that has less of a strong point of view. But the I've noticed, like, the bigger point of view you have when you get into a piece, like, the more you can tell the audience uh, appreciates it. Right. And, and we, we you mentioned this already, and I think it's very true, the idea of comfort and familiarity and, and mm -hmm. After a long day, that's what people like. They like to tuck in with their friends and yeah. the worldview that they like. Um, but I'm, I am interested, and you're at the forefront of it, on why we still care about these shows so much and certain hallmarks of them. You know, you, sitting down at the desk seemed like an enormous deal, and maybe no one expected that. Um, because in a way, you're making these shows now for two different distinct audiences and time periods. You're making them for people who are watching it at, at 1230, of mm -hmm. course. But you're also making them for people who are watching them in their cubicle at 12.30 p.m. the next day at lunch. Yes. Um, how do you walk that line between traditional, fealty to tradition of the format yeah. and wanting to shake it up and, and push things forward to a small degree? Well, I, you know what? I always, the lesson I learned at SNL is like if you do good work, that's the stuff that sort of lives on. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, when the Lonely Island guys came in, because they were sort of part of that digital revolution, mm-hmm. the, the entire part of it, I should say, at SNL. But at the same time, SNL was always built to be watched the next day. Like, it was right. already in sort of increments for YouTube before there was a YouTube. That's right. And late night, to some degree, is that as well. I mean, the biggest difference is I think most of what we do on late night is certainly on our late night. It's gonna like it's best consumed within twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. You know, a really good monologue, just like a really good weekend update. Like they don't last forever. That's right. You know, there are some jokes that obviously you could tell ten years later. Oh my god! And I remember Norm told this joke, and it's still really funny. But ours. They're better in a way, like, you know, they're like fresh fruit. They're going to go bad faster, but That's they're right. really good if you eat them close to when you first pick them from the tree. So we do still want people to consume our show either 1230 at night or 1230 the next day. And I feel like it'll be the same experience for them depending, you know, other than how they're watching or where they're watching it. You, you refer to your one of your abilities at SNL as, you know, as a as a collaborator and a facilitator. Mm-hmm. Um and that you know engendered a certain modesty in you as a performer. I want to come back to that in terms of SNL, but I actually think it served you very well on the show because what you have every night when I've watched is genuine enthusiasm for your guests. It, you know, for my my ideal twelve thirty show is a nice cocktail party that you yes. can go to where the guests are good, the host is good, the banter is good, and it's you know there doesn't have to be you know at eleven thirty there there are certain considerations that have to be made you're going to have to talk to the people who have the movie out that week right that can be great it can be great for ratings you can get big names but maybe you're not actually interested in them um you know a few months ago you had marlon james who wrote who now the booker prize yes, winning very, Seven very excited about that which is a terrific book and you got to have him on your show and you know even if people had never heard of him even if people had never heard of the book that made for good tv yes we were lucky you know again you obviously take a certain amount of gamble when you have somebody like Marlon on who hasn't, you know, there isn't tape. Right. You don't say, well, he's great on Kimmel, so I think. So, and did you know he was going to wear that fabulous suit before you booked him? Or I had just no idea. Because... It was great. I, but I will say we've been very lucky with Juno Diaz recently as well. Right. You realize uh, they're, they're more teachers. Since they, they're yes, teachers, right. they're fantastic in front of an audience. Yes. Um, but we do have this... To some degree, even, you know, you talked about it with the 1130 shows. It's, it's true with the 1230 shows as well. Like, you were obviously going to get people who promote. To some degree, it's that third guest spot mm-hmm. on all the shows where I feel like you can, as the host, show your taste mm-hmm. more than anywhere else. You know, last night, you know, Nathan Fielder was our third guest. Perfect. You know, and that's a great slot for sort of, like, comedians that really impress you or mm-hmm. authors of books you've read. Um, and, and for the audience to meet someone new. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you open the show with that, people might... Because we do... I can tell... I go out and say hi to the crowd every night before the show starts. And I basically, to some degree, tell three jokes almost the exact same way. Just as, like, bellwethers to mm-hmm. see, like, are they better or worse mm-hmm. than usual? And you can tell they are more excited if they have heard who the guests of the show are that sure. night. Um, now... By the time somebody like Marlon James comes on, they're as excited to see him as anyone. But it's just that top of the show, that first act, yeah. it is helpful when they're like, oh, my God, I'm here on a night that Bradley Cooper's here. They feel right. like, to some degree, there is a lottery to showing up at these things, and they want to feel like they're winners. And they've won, yeah. Yeah. But, so, but ultimately, the nice thing about our show is I would I would say that to, to pretty much um, 100% of the time, we don't have anyone on that I'm dreading talking to. Right. And that, I think, makes a big difference. And it's clear. I mean, I, I unless there's some episodes that I've missed where you had this, I believe you are note-free. I'm pretty interview. much note-free, yeah. So I feel very shamed here because yeah, oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually watching uh, MLB uh I bet if, you, if this was only eight minutes long, you could have gotten note-free as well. You never know. You never know. I, I, you may also notice that I always hold a pen even though I have no place to write it. Because, right. you know, either I am Bob Dole or it is my nervous tick during interviews. I still I can, I still pencil now at the desk a little bit. I'll, just, I like to have a pencil. I like hand. to just have something to yeah. hold just in case this goes sideways. I think I like it, especially with jokes, that holding a pencil in my hand makes me feel like if something goes wrong, I can fix it. Yeah. Even though it's already too late. I thought you were going to say you could then stab the audience in the eye. Yeah, and, but I could only stab one of them that's <laughs> true yeah. but the others would be shocked yeah exactly shocked <laughs> or at least warned that's right they would yeah. know start laughing yeah um i want to go back a little bit um i'm gonna turn the clock back a little bit i want to ask you about um the beginnings of your comedy career because i 
okay, here's how I want to frame this, because I, I know you did sketch. Um, mm-hmm. Did you begin sketch in college doing sketch? Yeah, like a sketch improv troupe okay. at Northwestern. Yeah. Um, I did sketch in college, mm-hmm. loved it, the most fun time I've ever had. I never thought that one could continue having that much fun past graduation. Right. I want to know, young, collegiate Seth Meyers, was it just a high that you didn't want to leave? Or did you see a path where potentially you could pursue Well, that, I think, of all the benefits of my Northwestern education that my parents were kind enough to pay for, was its proximity to Chicago. By the way, you've paid them back by introducing them to Idris Elba. I heard that interview. and absolutely. Thank you. uh, I thought he pushed it one line too many about hitting on your mom. Well... I'm pretty sure she still talks about it, so yeah. I, you know, he can push it however far. He okay, wants. fair enough. It was the greatest gift anyone's ever given my mother. But um, uh, we were so so close to Chicago, so we right. were in a sketch troupe, and those of us who really liked it and I think enjoyed it, we started taking, uh, going into Chicago uh, during the week and taking improv classes at at uh, this place I O, and then stuck around Chicago afterwards. So like because it was Chicago. You know, and we would all go see Second City on weekends. Like, we saw the path. It was mm-hmm. there for us, you know. And uh, who, was ha- there, who was there at that point? Uh, so when I was first, I remember, well, when I was at, when I first went, probably like my new student week, my parents came out mm-hmm. and took me out. And uh, I saw Colbert and Carell. Wow. Um, and then when my, you know, Dratch, uh, Stephanie Weir, Tina, mm-hmm. I saw Horatio on stage there. Scott adds it. Um but they were, I mean, it was fantastic. The people I saw on stage there blew my mind. What's amazing about that is, in, in my memory, when I would see comedians when I was in college, I thought they were the greatest people. I thought they were gods, like yeah. celebrities and worthy of you know global domination. You saw people who would eventually reach that level. Yeah. You, I, you and right. also, you know, polar, not only that, but like we were seeing it pretty quickly. Yes. Like they would, people would leave town for SNL. Right. So, you know, there was, I never thought, I'd get to SNL, but I thought maybe, you know, my goal was get to Second City and then hopefully Second City would maybe lead to SNL. Like that was, um, that was what I wanted to do after college more than anything else. What years were you a member of the Boom Chicago troupe in Amsterdam? All right. So I graduate. I'm pretty sure I saw you, but go on. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, April 97 to like February 99. I saw you. That's fantastic. I, uh, I actually went, and I don't know if this has ever come up, but with our uh, your fellow NBC colleague, uh, Alex Wagner. Oh, okay. Who is my good friend from Sketch Comedy Group in college. No way. She and her stepfather is uh, Dutch. And okay. visited her with a, another friend in the summer. We went to see Boom Chicago. Great. And I thought that you guys, again, I thought you guys were gods. Like, um, like you got to live in this fun city. Yeah. Fun is an understatement. Yes. And you got to just do sketch comedy and, you know, Stone College kids would come see you. This is the dream crowd. I think that might be the closest I ever felt to a god, <laughs> my years living in Amsterdam. Yeah. Like, even when I was, you know, living in New York as a young man yes. on SNL, people would say, you must, this must be the best time of your yeah. life. And I'd have to say, well, I lived in, I was 23 <laughs> living in Amsterdam. Yeah. I had a full-time job all, where I got to perform 200 nights a year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a great experience living in Amsterdam. And, again, I'm sorry to be like Idris Elba here. I am yeah. in so many ways. But your parents were uh, thrilled that you had a job. They were, that you were in Amsterdam. My parents, um, you know, my dad uh, is a businessman who I think, and this would be the case, had he chosen to be in comedy, I think my dad would be a very successful comedian. Interesting. My mother was a theater major at Northwestern, okay. so I think she, like then, is very proud of her sons wanting to like follow the arts. Of course. And they just like kind of love adventure. And over the course of the, because I was in Amsterdam for two years, and then my brother was there for three years. Mm-hmm. He did it as well. And they, you know, probably went over there like 15, 20 times. They loved it. And they were so, I mean, I think they were just really proud of us for taking this path. And that was also, uh, I was there during a golden age. The people that worked over in Amsterdam when I was there, Ike Barinholz from the Mindy Project, uh, Jason Sudeikis, Kay Cannon, Jordan Peele. They were all there. They were all there. Uh, My brother and... I wish I had a program, but like everything from that trip, I somehow lost it. Yeah, (laughs) I I don't know. I believe it. I don't know why. But uh, Was was Allison Silverman there as well? Allison Silverman was there. Allison Silverman was my roommate. I lived with Allison and Pete Gross, who's uh, uh, an actor and writer as well. And Allison was the executive producer of Colbert Report for many years. He's now a writer in L.A. Um, Probably has terrific skin now, like Andy Samberg. Fantastic. Allison and I... Allison was the person I went out to dinner with after I auditioned for SNL. That's what I remember. So 
here's the thing, and, and again, you've you've lived this, so tell me if I'm wrong in my characterization of it. But this sounds like the most fun thing ever. But it's interesting in the way it was not very gently professionalized. There was a circuit, right? And there were different r- rungs on that ladder that you yeah. wanted to reach, and you yes. were aware of them. Yes. Um, what was the balance? And I'm sure the balance was a little bit tipped being in Amsterdam. But what was the balance of just having pure fun versus I have some goals here. I would like to make it to the next level. Well, the interesting thing about Amsterdam was if you got the job at Boom Chicago, because it's, it's Second City, there was a touring company and there mm-hmm. was a second stage and there was a main stage. There were all there were understudies at Boom Chicago. You were just on the main stage. Yeah. So the minute your first day there, you were at the highest level there was in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what people decided and what everyone was always weighing against is this is the most fun in the world. But yeah, I'm pretty close to the ceiling of an American actor living in Amsterdam. Right. You know, where am I? What am I going to do? And so for me, it was two years. Uh, you know, my brother was three years. I think Ike was around, you know, uh, two and a half, three years. And so it was just people <laughs> saying, like, this is – I, like, live in Disneyland. Yeah. But at the same time – Are there lost souls? Like, people who are just probably just riding a bike still to a- Well, they're not lost souls because you have not lost your soul if you marry a Dutch woman. But some of them sort of have That's become, true. like – you know, like, people went over there and just realized, like, oh, this is a wonderful life just, and I'm perfectly satisfied Just super being. Dutch. Yeah. They just went full Dutch. Uh, <laughs> my brother – this – I don't know if you know this little no. uh, tidbit about my brother. So my brother dated uh, for two years over there Carice Van Houten, Melisandre on Game of Thrones. No. Yes. Your brother dated... Because she was living in Amsterdam. She was a uh, Dutch priestess. actress. Yeah. How crazy is that? He could have fathered a smoke baby. He could have fathered a smoke baby. This is my claim to fame. Yes. Because uh, you need one at this point in your I need career. one. So, Carissa stayed very close to both of us. So yes. We're very uh, good friends with her. She texted me, you know, whatever this is now, six years ago and said, yeah. uh, Hey, I just got... I'm auditioning for game, this show called Game of Thrones. Yeah. I know you. It seems like a book you would have read, which I had. That is the best friendly burn. It's like, the that friendliest. Right. Slip the knife a little bit. But she did say, they, "Is this part of Melisandre? Is it good?" And I was like, "Oh, it'll. You would be so good at Melisandre." So, so how many texts have you written to each other over the last few weeks and months, being like, "LOL, isn't it funny the way everyone thinks Jon Snow is dead?" <laughs> I know, right? Because she's kind of involved, right? She's kind of involved. I will, to her credit. Um, no one involved in that show has told me anything one way or the other, but you can tell they have all been so coached. Here, here's the thing. I, I, I was saving the Game of Thrones talk, but uh, we can take a little <laughs> interregnum Great, here. Great, let's do it. To say, um, no one has asked the right question. They are so lucky, these people at HBO and on the show, because they went in front of people at Comic-Con, they went in front of people at TCA, and these, I will, I'll refrain, these yeah. uh, people in the audience said... Is Jon Snow dead? No, no, no. That allows them to say, of course he's dead. Right. The question is, is he coming back to life? Yes. When is he coming back to life? Obviously he's coming back to life, and they cannot keep the charade up much longer. Well, here was my... Uh, I, so I moderated the Game of Thrones panel at Comic-Con. This year? This year. Okay. And so now I can go straight to the source. You can go straight to the... And I will say, like again, no one gave me anything. Right. But I heard panelists saying to one another, I'm so nervous they're going to ask us about Kit. Yes. The only thing I'll say is, you'd only be nervous if there was something to give up. You're hiding, of course. Yeah, because there, there is an answer that no one's nervous but about. Here, exactly. Here's yeah. the thing. Poor Kit. He, where is he right now? First of all, there are websites that know. He's in Belfast. Sure. But second, is he under lock and key? Do you have to pretend... He got his haircut. Did he have to fake things on his IMDb page right. to suggest that he is working on other projects now that he's done with the show? It's so... <laughs> I mean, we have such unreasonable expectations as an audience. Yes, it's so unfair. It is now... It's beyond 24 Because we're the ones that pushed them to do this. Yes. You know, otherwise they would just say, oh, just, yeah, you'll find yeah, out next year. It's a story, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's a story. It's a There's, TV show. Yeah, Relax. Well, we have to do more and then you'll find out. Um, but uh, I can't wait. I mean... Yeah, you are you are we you are a very big fan. Of the, I am a big fan of the show. Very big fan and of big the fan show. of the books. And I'm I'm a little nervous. It is that interesting thing of us book readers. Yes, we've now reached a point where we don't have this thing we can lord over the non book readers. It was fun for you guys, right? It was a fun ride. It was a fun ride to like watch people suffer and be shocked. And, yeah, and you could have the ultimate. I mean, I feel like it's a look that I carried on my face throughout all of middle school. Yes, without reason, but like feeling I you know I well I look at the comic books I'm reading right now. I feel like we were the ants. And the TV show where the grasshopper people uh, were starting it up. And now, like, our whole, the whole promise was yeah. that when winter came, we would have the food. And yeah. now it's like, no, there's food for everybody. I'm That's like, oh, right. Come on. And we're all equally hungry. Yes. 
Um, okay, so back to the back to the timeline here. Um, when you did get SNL, which was two thousand one, one, um, you of course, like many people, you joined the show as a performer. Yep, and your career there, as you said, was longer than many, many, many people's have been. But it was also a really fascinating career because you were primarily a performer. You were always a writer, I would imagine. Yes, and like then, many, uh, like many yes. performers. Yeah, and then some people, like Jason, was hired as a writer and went in front of the camera, right. and that's happened many times too. Um, I've, as a, as probably all fans of SNL are, I love watching the different kinds of careers the show allows. You can make your own lane on that show. Very much. When did that lane begin to open up to you? When did you begin to see that you could be just as effective and perhaps more effective performing, but also steering the ship from behind the scenes to the degree that you did? Well, I always felt more comfortable to show writing mm-hmm. than performing. I think like a lot of people, you get hired at SNL and then you feel just naturally you have this ego boost of, oh my God, Lauren sure. Michaels saw something in me and I'm one of the great performers. But I, the reality was it made me forget to some degree, the limits I always knew of myself as a performer. Yeah. We used to joke when I, I was doing this two-person improv show when I was 26 years old, and I used to say to the audience beforehand, like, you just pay very close attention because I can play anyone from 25 to 27. Like, <laughs> I didn't... I'm not one of those people. Yeah. And, like, Fred Armisen, you put on a different wig on him, he becomes a different person. Yeah. I always look like me in a wig. Like, that was just... <laughs> I did Whatever it was about my face... Uh, John Kerry, you know. Oh, yeah, that good. That was a good one. <laughs> but, uh... So I, you know, for my first three years at SNL, like, I was, it was, like, the thing that I think a lot of people on that show have gone through, which is you just feel, like, lesser than. You know, I was constantly comparing and despairing myself to all the other people on that show and the things they could do. And also, as every young performer comes in, there are noisy personalities established when you get there. And you were yes. there um, when, when Will was still there. Yeah, my first year with Will, that wasn't, it was, you know, that's fine because you assume the people that are senior to you that will yeah. be better. Like, the um, more terrifying thing is my second year... Fred Armisen, Will Forte show up. Right. Who are just two of the most unique, distinct voices. And really, I think their first day on the show, they knew what they were better at. It took me a few years to figure it out. Interesting. And that's really terrifying, is when you feel like you're being lapped. How much, you know, obviously, uh, it's well documented the way behind the scenes used to be at the show. Um, In terms of what you're describing, in terms of feeling a little competitive, a little nervous about your place and things... How much of that is the ingrained culture of a show that operates like that with the, you know, you need, there's only limited airtime, there's so many people Mm -hmm. fighting for it, and how much of it is really just driven by young people wanting to succeed? I mean, is it a top-down institutional feeling of, is the show run like a high school basketball coach being like, you know, you better run faster, or are you sort of, that's who young performers are naturally? Everybody, yeah. I mean, again, no one got there without feeling like they deserve screen time. Of course. So... It's, you know, for some a rude awakening, for some it goes exactly the way they think. But also, like, for, ever, for no one is it consistent because the one thing is the show is very much a meritocracy. You know, mm-hmm. there is that table read on Wednesday. Um, you know, every now and then, you know, something fantastic won't make it or something that is a bit of a dud will. But mm-hmm. more often than not, like, the, the show follows the quality of the work each yes. week. Um, you know, maybe when somebody gets fully, when you're Will Ferrell in your last year, you know, maybe that... You know, Lauren will say, well, let's, that let's wasn't great on Wednesday, but let, let's just put it out there. It'll get better by Saturday. But more often than not, it really is the best stuff getting there. But, you know, it's just naturally, I think more than anything, what you said is there's just so little real estate. Right. When you, when, sorry to interrupt, but when you see, you had Pete Davidson on the show this week yeah. for his first, uh, I think, first talk show yeah. appearance. It was fantastic. He was great. Um, I loved his story about when he got the call, which, you know, is, what, a year ago now, basically. <laughs> yeah. And Lauren said, I, I don't know what to do with you, but you got the show. I imagine that happens to a lot of people. When you see that look in his eyes, and he's very young, but when you see the look in his eyes, he's new to the show, he's one year in, he's gotten a little bit of traction. Do you recognize that look? Do you want to hug him? Do you want to be him? Do you want to give him some advice? Because this is a be- he's at the beginning of a journey that you navigated. Expertly. Yeah, but again, you know, I'm so impressed with Pete, and I think to some degree why he has a leg up. Being a stand-up, like his mm-hmm. whole career has been going up to a mic alone against a room. Yes. Coming from sketch and improv, where you come from a troupe, you come from, like, you, you always had people watching your back. Right. It's, I think, a little more jarring because then you show up. And, and so to some degree, like, again, I've just been so impressed with Pete's work on the show. And I think he had that leg up because he had done the scariest thing on earth, which is, you know, 
when he was whatever 17 16 i can't imagine when he first got behind a microphone but yeah it showed like he's he's older than his years what at what point did you begin to move into the role that i think you, you still exist you still sort of have in the popular imagination which is sort of Lawrence consigliere i mean you were the head writer for a number of years yeah. um you were working closely with him at that point when did that begin? How did that relationship evolve over time so that you were comfortable enough to be the one in the room with the boss? Right. Um, pushing for things, pushing back against things. Well, so I survived my first four years on the show. I think I survived more as a writer than a performer. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I even, I found it hard to write for myself. So it was obviously going to be hard for other people to write for me. Right. Whereas I could write a group scene. I could write a scene where, you know, I play Anderson Cooper and I interview other people. Like right. I've, I've sort of found... You're a facilitator. Yeah, and I found ways to, like, write myself into scenes as, like, a point guard, ultimately. (laughs) And, but also, even when I was just a cast member, like, I started writing cold opens or monologues, things that I couldn't be in just by the design of what they were. Right. But by doing that, then you'd get in the room with Lorne, you know, you'd talk just to discuss your script, and that was probably where he sort of first... I mean, it's more, to be honest, like, it's not really about you being comfortable with Lorne as much as Lorne being comfortable with you. Yes. And when Tina when decided to leave, that was when Lauren reached out to ask. Because I basically did a year sort of underneath Tina, mm-hmm. her last year there, before I took over. And uh, it was great. I mean, again, like, Lauren teases me that I was the only performer who was dying to be a writer. <laughs> like, everybody else was, like, so wants to go the other yeah. direction. I was like, I would love to be on the writing staff. You get to come in all day Thursday? <laughs> Perfect. So, what a dream. Yeah. Um, but it was – that was the first time that I felt any sort of degree of comfort on the show was because, you know, you not only got to write – as a head writer, not only do you get to write your own thing, but you get to help other people with their things. And I was finally felt like uh, not a pretender. Like I felt right. like an imposter and now it's like, oh, I can, at least I see how I'm adding value to the show. How would you characterize your relationship with Lauren during those years? And obviously you're still close to them to this day. I mean he is a – enormous figure in yes. the cultural imagination. But you have been in rooms with him at 1 and 2 in the morning – what don't we know? Um, or do we know it all at this point? I mean, you probably know it all at some point. I mean, Lauren has excellent taste. Um, he's not – he's far more passive-aggressive than aggressive. So you you know, you know, will think you nailed a sketch and you sort of bring it in. And, and sitting while Lauren silently reads through something you've written is a pretty tight way to go through five or six minutes. And – you know, he has a he has a really nice way of sort of saying like if like he'll say like, you know, if you look, if this is what you want to go out with on Saturday, <laughs> I trust you. But that is a very nice way of yes. getting you and, and whoever you're writing with that day to go back in and, and take another pass or two. You were in the room with him and I imagine other producers um, during some auditions, right? You would yes. every year. Um, thanks to Mark Marin, the audition story has become like a national folktale. Yeah. I mean, uh, everyone now hears, everyone has to go on his podcast and talk about their audition story. Mm-hmm. You're in the room on the other side of those. So what what can you tell us about those auditions and your role in them? Well, you know, I wouldn't, it, there's the two parts of it, is the audition story and then the Lorne meeting. The oh, Lorne meeting true. is usually, and I think that's but, like Mark's. But, but Marin's thing is his own Lorne meeting, which you'll yes, never course. get over. But right. You know, I was just listening, like like Michaela Watkins was on the podcast recently, and she's such a phenomenal talent. Yeah. And I think really proof that SNL, the best talent spotters in the world, and yep. pro- often write about what people's lanes should be. Yes. Um, she's much more, better suited to what she's doing now. It seems like Agreed. she would agree. Um, you know, but she told this story, and they all, and it's amazing to hear these people who are very famous, medium famous, successful, all have their same version of the story of being in a dark room, knowing that Lauren and you are in that in that I crowd with the power to change their life. I so when I auditioned, I did not know Rachel Dratch. I knew of her, mm-hmm. but I had a friend who knew her and I she gave him my number so I could call her and okay. say, "Hey, I'm about to audition." And one of the things that Rachel told me that I've told everybody ever since was nobody laughs, which is not entirely true. Okay. But it's a great thing to tell somebody who auditions because then if you hear even one laugh, you're winning. You think you're killing it. Right. And that is all you really need is like a, a kick of confidence. And so having had auditioned and remembered it, I feel like I was a pretty good laugher when I went to uh, – and I should say because you mentioned her. Um, Michaela had a like white-hot great audition. Like, I still remember. But she says she did Ariana Huffington after someone else did Ariana Huffington? Yeah, but her Ariana Huffington (laughs) was the one. I mean, again, there was, I mean, there were years 
where you'd see seven Amy Winehouses. Okay. Like that was just – there were always like some – like you'd have 20 people come yeah. in and there'd be that cultural touchstone person that everybody would do. Right. Um, but at that point, you're not even necessarily looking for the, the specifics of the, the of the impersonation. You're looking no. for the, the, the talent behind it. And the approach. I mean, I think what the unique, delightful thing about SNL auditions are is that there's not – they don't give you a script to learn. Mm-hmm. They don't – give you they give you very loose parameters and ultimately they're sort of saying like we're gonna give you five minutes like show us what you have it's this fascinating it'll never stop you fascinating to me and many other people it's this amorphous thing where the show will become anything you want it to be if you have the drive and the talent but you also have to bend yourself to the show if you want to survive to a certain degree i mean you have to be able to be the glue person not everyone can do this but you know you, you yes can, to be a glue person the sketch to be the sixth talking head to be the waiter i mean there you have to be a part of a troop still it, yeah it, and sometimes balance. you know i like i think when you look at um i think hater now will leave it sort of like he'll be he'll be mentioned in the best of all time i think so but sure. his path like you i think people forget that he was like very much just like a utilitarian yeah but he was so good at it and he had this mix of being an impressionist, yeah, um, and then being able to learn impressions that he didn't come with, yeah, and then being a really good straight man in scenes, and then all of a sudden you just realize like there was that one year where you realized oh the audience loves Bill Hader, well, and everything he does he makes better, yeah, it, it, but in a less overt way than Will Ferrell for example, who, right. who 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 owns the screen a different way, but everything Bill does is. Well, there's not, and I really think this is the most impressive. Like, he's the hardest to say, like, well, the classic hater sketch is yes. X, because he has so many approaches to the way he does stuff. Yes. That, um, and that, you know, again, I would put that cast up against almost any cast. There's no question. And um, uh, uh, I think it was Bill Murray who said, which was not, I mean, he was pointed out that they were just great actors. Yes. And, which cat? Uh, the sort of Bill was saying about this cast that like Wig, you know, Sudeikis, Forte, Samberg, yeah. like they were Myers. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll be a part of it, but mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I was watching more than anything you were else. in the room. I was in the room, but it was, and I will say, like I was a part of a great writing staff. Yeah. Like there was really great writers there, and uh, really great, and so with great writing and great actors, and also so you could have. Yes, you'd have like a you know the show always needs like a, it was a great Kristen Wiig sketch, but then I feel like those years there were like three sketches where they were just cast. The cast was out, and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't uh, a cult of personality, one person driving the show. No, it was an incredible team. Um, when I spoke to uh, your friend and former coworker John Mulaney, he talked about the, the experience he remembers most was just being in a room with Mick Jagger ordering takeout. It's yeah. being like, okay, that is a moment where I am in Saturday Night Live. And <laughs> I, I was curious for you, having been there for so many years, if you could pinpoint the, a moment early on when you were just, oh, my God, I'm starstruck. Look who I'm in the room with versus <clears throat> I'm in a room with Mick Jagger ordering takeout. What was the moment when you realized what you were doing and how normal it had become? The first time De Niro hosted after the table read, I was running to catch an elevator. And when I turned, the only person in the elevator was De Niro. <laughs> And that was the last elevator I wanted to be in because I could already pre – I was pre-feeling awkward about uh-huh. it. But you can't then – he saw me. I can't, you can't run out. No. You can't, like, let say you'll get the next one. No. Uh, and so I always remember that. I thought so many thoughts in that 17-floor <laughs> elevator ride down. Oh, that's like, a long... this is real. This is, uh, this is a real and moment. 17 floors is not – these are old elevators. These this are old nice. elevators. They don't race down. <laughs> Although I should also – because this is one of my favorite uh, – and I have many. Yes. Uh, favorite moments with John Mulaney on that show. Him, he was uh, he was truly one of the greatest writers I worked with there. And uh, but we, I remember, had to go pitch monologue jokes to Mick Jagger. Oh yes, and okay. uh, it was so we had it was that thing of like you you print out like you get like twenty jokes yeah. from the room, and then we went in, and John had the sheet, and I can't remember the first joke, but uh, he he read it to Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger just said no. Yeah. <laughs> And then John handed it to me. To make you do the rest of it? To make the, me do the next one. So I read one, and he was like, no. <laughs> and then you realize, because you put your best ones up top. Yeah. So you're like, if we if we got straight no's on one and two, the yeah. next 18. You're doomed. And I just, <laughs> I just remember going back to hand it back to Mulaney and realizing, oh, we're done. We're not. <laughs> Mulaney's not going to read another joke. And uh, Was that longer or shorter than the 17 floors of the Denier? That actually felt maybe even longer. Because, yeah. you know, I've been on elevators before, but I've never been, you know, <laughs> bombing and pitching of... jokes to Mick Jagger. Right. Um, 
the the relationships that you built with people on the show is sort of staggering because you had so many people come in and what I imagine to be the case and please tell me if I'm wrong about this but people who are very famous at other things come in at their most tender because they have yeah. to do something they've never done before so you play a very vital role in their emotional survival for a few days right I yeah mean, I think of like Peyton Manning who was obviously very good on the show and maybe he was confident but he can lead a team down the field but to do a monologue these are different things so you develop a kind of a, a surprisingly intimate relationship with people who are otherwise untouchable you really do and it's lovely. First of all, it's lovely that somebody gives you six days yeah. of their life for this sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously they're very honored and flattered to be there. But you take if you take care of them, and I think that's something that you know that the cast members in sketches with them do, and the writing staff that they deal with the most does. I will say though, on the athlete level, um, they just don't get that spooked. Like I don't think Peyton Manning looks back and thinks. Um, I'm always happy to see him, but I yeah. don't think he he showed up and he's like, oh, these guys are going to have to show me what to do. I think he knew he could do it yeah. and he was right. What's the worst case versus being tackled? That's the by, thing. You don't right. lose you don't lose work in the future because you bomb on us and Ellis and athlete. It's a very good point. Yeah. Um, here's something I, I'm very eager to talk to you about, which is that you are low key super famous. And here's what I want to read to you. I'm going to quote. I, I rarely do this, but this is why I have the notes. I want to quote from the New York Times. Okay. It's a newspaper of record. Yes, yes. This is from August. Okay. This is an article about Kanye West's fashion show. Uh-huh. But Mr. West was always going to draw a crowd, and he did. Kim Kardashian West was there with a the couple's daughter. Her sisters, Chloe and Kourtney Kardashian, her half-sister, Kendall Jenner. Kylie Jenner, Kendall's sister, appeared at the show. Nearby sat Lord, Ricardo Tishi, Michael Strahan... The rappers and musicians, Common, Two Chains, Pusha T, Miguel, down a bit farther, Courtney Love, Michael Stipe, and Debbie Harry, and Seth Meyers. <laughs> this is quite an August company. Yeah. How are you in that room? Why? Well, what are you doing in that room? Um. So <laughs> you're a fashionable guy. I'm a fashionable enough guy. So I, I, I really, the real answer is I don't quite know. Okay. But I will say this: I am a great lover of Kanye West. You are in a safe space. And. He was someone who came to SNL yes. and sort of changed the way people did music on the show. Like he would build, he would like cover the set in white, and he would bring right. like, and it became a thing that people started doing more. Because when right. you think of like the classic SNL, like nobody like redecorated the set. It was just always them doing their thing in front of the train station. Yes, and he uh, was a huge headache for the crew because like you know the, every music act they like slot ninety minutes to rehearse. Yep. Kanye would always go super long; it would push back the day, but. Also, uh, the SNL crew, I can say, always appreciates excellence. Mm -hmm. So Kanye was someone that drove everybody crazy and then always did this per like excellent thing mm -hmm. and made the show special. And that is what our crew respects more than anything else. And so over the years, just like through SNL, um, I, we did a sketch together once. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say like I felt like I knew him or anything, but every time I see him, you know, I, I say hello and I, I like talking to Kanye a lot. And then he was, you know, our second show uh, of Late this Night. Is, this is what I'm getting to. Yeah. And it was um, it was a huge favor. You know, we asked him to just talk. You know, he wasn't promoting any music then. And uh, it was really for me, like, because I am fascinated about his process. I'm fascinated. Yeah. Like, there are very few people. And, I, and this will sound like I'm commenting about his ego but really he is very good at talking about Kanye West yes like some people you have on and you don't you can't get them to talk about themselves they almost don't know but he is I think he's thinking about Kanye West a lot too well he makes very conscious artistic choices he, yes. he knows what he is doing and what he's playing with when he plays with it and it's all yeah. very intentional which makes good art and it was uh, and for me it was a great conversation it and was. then he also by the day of agreed like decided he was going to do music yeah. and did this fantastic medley and so it's just one of those things. Like, I'm just a, a fan. And then, anyways, I got an invitation to go to his fashion show. Does it arrive by Dove? Like, how does this invitation show up to you? It just kind of, you just kind of hear you've been invited. Someone whispers to you on the platform at Grand Central. And like then you a turn a around and they're gone. Yes. And then you're like, is it a real invitation? But then I wasn't, and it was, it was a show day. And so right. I usually would never leave in the middle of the afternoon on a show day. And I sort of mentioned in passing to my wife that I had been invited but wasn't going to go. And to my wife's credit. Yes. Because I'm very happy I went. Yes. She said, oh, no, you have to. Go. You're an idiot if you don't go. You have to Just go. go. Just go in early and do whatever two hours you're going to miss in the morning and then go. She's a very wise woman. She's a very wise woman. I am so – I mean, of all the things we've talked about, Saturday Night Live, everything, I think – Friendship, even casual friendship with Kanye West, yes. maybe at the top of my list. And it's it's very casual. Like I, this is not, but um, it is. Uh, I'm very happy about it. 
could you text him right now? I'm not going to ask you to. Um, Do you have that ability? I think the last phone number I have of his, yeah. I can't imagine it's still his number. He, I, I just want to imagine that he cycles through a new phone. Like, he, he has burner phones, yeah. like the wire. He just snaps we them We Because when I, we wrote uh, this sketch for him, I don't like, 2007. I will say, we wrote a sketch about how he interrupted award shows <laughs> before the Taylor Swift one. So he did, he participated in yes. a sketch about that. Yes. And then, like, you know, you He was inspired. So he's both self-aware, like, his... He's very, very smart, and I think so much of... This is the other reason why, and I'm sorry to... Most of my podcasts I do are derailed by Kanye West talk. Yeah. But I don't buy all of the performance. Everything he does is performance. And when you see him on your show, episode two, he's humble. He's a guy on your show being a guest, you know, being there to service your questions, and... He's, you know, there wasn't anything extra about that. He was not performing the same guy that he is performing when he interrupts Taylor Swift. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe you didn't serve as not enough liquor, but you know, I saw him uh, this Time 100 event that I've been to a few mm-hmm. years uh, or a few times, I should say, over the years. And you know, it's a tough room for they always have a musical act, and uh, they're fantastic, and people do great. You know, I think I've seen you know Prince there, Rihanna, yeah. like they're great. Kanye just like he didn't. Like I guess he didn't lower ex- his expectations at all of like what he was going to expect from this uh-huh. crowd. He was like, "No, I'll, I'll I'm going to destroy here too." Yeah, and um, I'm going to get Henry Kissinger on his feet. And- yeah, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to go until you get on your feet. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he's still there. Yeah, unfortunately, but it was uh, no. What like everybody there just kind of. And again, like I said, like it hadn't ever. The show had never been a dud. Yeah, but it was the first time that I feel like everybody really appreciated that. Like, oh, he gave us a full. We got the full Kanye. God bless him. Yeah. Um, we are, we are running low on time, but I, since I have you here, I feel like we should talk about this as well, which is, um, you know, I know from our, our, our limited email exchanges that you are a big fan of, of television. Yeah. I still think back from your fantastic Emmy joke about TV being the booty call of entertainment. Yes. I call back to that often. Um, what I especially appreciate is that I think we share a passion for very, very slow narrative TV. Yes. I, well, I should say my favorite television show of all time. Yes. Um, it was a miniseries of all time. Yes. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, amazing. Slowest. So slow. Slowest spy movie of all time. Yes. Anytime, like, it, my brother will laugh because I, when, and when I'm, like, in a funk or I'm depressed, yeah. I just watch it from start to finish because I, and I've explained it to him that I just like, I, I like knowing how it ends. Yes. I just want to spend, like, You just want to live in that world. Yeah. So I like, I can be really patient. Yeah, but you, we've talked about um, Rectify. Rectify. Which is a terrific show. Slow. And, and Show Me a Hero. Yep. These are things that are hard to convince people to commit to. Yeah. They're, and I would imagine also hard to promote because, you know, um, like I had people from Rectify on here. I had uh, Abigail and Aiden on the show. The, the viewership is passionate for Rectify, but it's kind of probably hard to say, okay, well, I want, you know, I want Ray, the guy that created the show that gets 800,000 viewers on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Right. Yeah, but you can. You could do it. You could do it if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, we could do it if we wanted to. It is... But it's hard. The other thing about those shows is you don't – it's not – it's a hard show to recommend. Yes. Because you don't – like, there's that thing of I've never thought everybody should like what I like. I think yes. that's a very important part of, like, saying about shows. I mean, so there's something I adore and I can't – you know, I'll say to my friends, like, oh, I, I'm watching Rectify. And I'll say, should I watch it? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, watch, like, the I first 10 minutes. that's a valid answer. Yeah. I, I put the Sundance miniseries Top of the Lake at the top of my mm-hmm. year-end list in 2013 – and people will say, well, should I watch it? And I, I honestly cannot tell you. to. Do, you have to make that decision for yourself. Yeah. Because it depends your feelings on, you know, nine hours spent by a lake in New Zealand. Like, yeah. I like going there, but you might and not. And I, I, you know, I certainly, I'm a, a great lover of the closed uh, parentheses show. Yes. Like Top of the Lake was, which I liked as well. I had a real comfort sitting down knowing, like, this is not going to go on. Right, forever. Oh, they're making a second one. Are they really? They are. I had, uh, uh, with Elizabeth? Yeah, she was oh, here talking about it. Right. She, she confirmed. But um, that, I should, the clo- that case is closed. Yes, that case is closed. Yeah, that's, because that Although was. the ghost linger. Oh, really? Oh, that ghost linger. <laughs> I'm sure. That, is, ghost, that, was, that was the uh, tagline. Ghosts always linger. Yeah, they do linger. Um, well, the, the, this idea that people have been talking about, and I've been talking about, about there being so much TV, um, you've been playing with it really well on the show with Fred, yeah. with uh, his, Fred Armisen's super accurate yeah. TV recaps. Which are wonderful, and they must be so much fun to do because the best. you have no idea. No idea. I think the key to those bits, and I recommend people please track these down. You've been doing them. Yeah. Did you just start? Just this week. Yeah, yeah. they've been great. Um, is that the first thing Fred says to you is, did you see the pilot? 
which is exactly what everyone who is a TV snob says first. Yeah. Oh, well, did you see the pilot? <laughs> it's also what I love about Fred is he will find, like, I mean, because I, ver- I make it so clear before yes. I bring up the title that I have not seen the show. Right. And then you tell Fred, and he says, have you seen it? He's like, have yeah, you he's seen like, the pilot? Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, he's, so, he's so appalled by you. Um, but the benefit of this glut of television is that it's allowed very talented people like yourself to just would just have fun. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I didn't want to let you go without talking about The Awesomes, the cartoon show you do on Hulu. Yeah. And specifically Documentary Now, which you guys did, with, which you, Hader, and Armisen did, yeah. um, with a, num- a number of other people, talented people involved, uh, on IFC. And particularly Documentary Now... I don't know of a world prior to 2015 where a yeah. new television network would say, obviously, people want to be in business with you guys. You're yeah. well-known. You, We're very lucky that way. But what you wanted to do was so deeply specific. And it went beyond – it's not a parody of documentaries. No. It's sort of lived-in s- celebration of their darkest quirks. I, I don't know how you would even describe it. There were times with sketches, I remember – and this is kind of how I feel about uh, documentary now – which will seem I, – I don't want to, like, oversell it. But I, there were sketches where I'd say to Lauren, like, I'm not sure if it's good, but I think it's great. Yes. Which is, like, it's not – like, you will either – you either think it's great yeah. or it's not is, it, is that the 12.50 a.m. sketch? Is that, like, to the, some degree, like the potato yeah, chip sketch? Yeah, exactly. The... It's not, like – I mean, if you're saying, like, well, what's good? Good is a sketch that gets a lot of laughs. And yeah. like, but, like, great – it's either like if it worked, it would be great, yes. and if it didn't work, it wasn't going to be like well, it's funny enough to like tune into, You're right? So, um, and again, I should mention both Reese Thomas and Alex Buono, who directed, yes. and they directed the shorts on SNL for many years, and and almost all the sort of style um, specific stuff. But yeah, you know, we were, and also we were just you we were just really lucky that there's a network like IFC that was it wasn't even a hard sell, like when we pitched this idea, they were in from jump. Yeah, and you know, we're very lucky. I think we a credit to Fred and Carrie because thanks to Portlandia, right. I think IFC saw this as, oh, this is sort of this kind of uh, unique comedy brand we're trying to develop. But it's also, and, and, we, and we can wrap up with this, but you know, one of the things that has always made SNL and NBC's comedy brand and that wonderful building so appealing, I think, for so many generations is that it feels like home for a lot of people. It feels like fun. Yeah. And we get to have a window into the fun you guys are having. And the sort of post-SNL stardom that you and specific, and Fred and Bill specifically are celebrating is one in which there are no there are no barriers, but there are no barriers below you either. Like, you will go back to TV and take a character part. You know, you, will celebrate, you are still going to continue to have fun. You don't need to move to L.A. and try to be in action movies. Um, although that works out for some people. Yeah. They, they end up with 1130 talk shows. But um, I, I find that really compelling. Well, you know, for us, that is what drew us to us. We knew. I mean, look, we were all lucky um, to have other things that we could sort of have be our main sort of job mm-hmm. but at the same time you know if i had free time like people say what do you how do you have time for documentary now and i sort of want to say like well if i had free time and i if i wanted to have a hobby like i wouldn't want to go fishing on a fishing vacation with bill and fred right i'd want to go on a vacation where we made little doc fake documentaries where you played yeah and so it is like uh, you know and i i should stress that like the people who work on the shows like work very hard and it's not like so fun no. but for me it is like the greatest gift as a writer I ever had was being able to write something and to turn it over to people like Fred, to people like Bill, who have never once uh, not elevated the work you do. Right. And so that, and, you know, again, like that's probably, uh, I have no, I'm so happy doing my show and I hope I do it for a really long time. But yes, I, the one thing I miss probably the most is just, hey, like here, Kristen. Andy, Will. And then you get to watch them first. You get to see it live. Uh, Last thing, you're doing your show. You're making more things for IFC. Five years from now, after uh, SNL 45, Lauren says, you know, I think I'm going to retire. Seth, do you want to do it? What do you say? I don't think – I think it would be a crazy job to follow Lauren. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know – you know, even if, like, there wasn't late night, because I don't want to do it more than I want to host late night. Um, Even if there wasn't late night, I don't know. What if you were, like, Paul Ryan – and everyone in the at Thirty Rock is like, we need you, right, we right. need you. I know you don't want to do it. I it's a suicide run. Drafted, but if I got drafted, yeah. I would to serve my country. But um, I do believe that. I think. Look, don't, I don't. Don't get me wrong. I think Lauren is 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 people appreciate Lauren. Yes. it's not like he's underappreciated, but they might to some degree slightly undervalue exactly how much he means to each week on that show. That's right. Like, because I do think 
obviously everyone's like he's got incredible taste and he's this uh, puppet master and he's set people off and set them up to succeed but he really is still so important to the daily DNA of that show it's not like he's been slowly handing off responsibilities he's there every day every night every show night certainly yeah I mean he comes in late he's the last person to come in wow yeah he's he comes in late oh he comes in he doesn't leave er, you're saying he doesn't leave late he comes in late he comes in late yeah you're always like where's Lorne well, I mean, he's probably the Yankee. I mean, he's he's a busy guy. Yeah, he's like strolling in. He's like a very healthy Canadian who like takes a like an hour constitutional every day. That's key to it, right? Like that's under that's underreported that, that he's a hale and hearty Canadian. That's the part that part that I well, like he's the one thing he figured out is like, oh, I'm not staying up all night writing. Yeah. You're staying up. That's all why night I writing. hired you. Yeah, delegation is key. Yeah, and so he sort of has the uh, yeah. He always comes in. Like, he looks like he should have, like, a knotty walking stick <laughs> and, like, a, a, a pack with his lunch. So, uh, more Gandalf, more Tom Bombadil. Like, what? Second, Bombadil. It's pure Bombadil? Yeah, yeah. No Gandalf. There's no Gandalf to Lorne, because uh, <laughs> Lorne would never, like, sort of make that, any sort of declarations in that Gandalfian way. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad that I could bring it back to SNL try and get you with a gotcha question and make you nerd out all in the last 30 seconds of this podcast. Very well done. That's called putting a bow on it. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Seth Meyers, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.